listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Glad you're here. Welcome to Crosspoint. And uh, what we want to do this morning is we want to open God's Word and we want to see how it points to Christ. That the story of the Bible is about reconciliation, mankind, to our Creator God. And so it's really not a standalone message. Standalone messages are incredibly hard because that's where, as we talked about, we talk about often where you parachute in on a verse and just, you just kind of grab one or what feels good. Can you preach? Yeah, find a verse and preach on it. It's really hard to do. And so really, in my eyes, this is a three-part series. And so this is the last message of a three-part series. The first message took place on Good Friday. And basically what we did on Good Friday is if you were here for that service and if you're if you weren't, you, you can't. We don't have it on podcast, I don't believe, but all you need to do is go to Luke chapter 23, and it's Luke, the gospel of Luke, and it's his testimony, it's his account of the crucifixion of Christ. And so that was part one in this series, and then part two in this series was last Sunday. It was Easter Sunday, where we looked at Romans chapter 5, and we, and we look at the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection and the, the fact that our justification comes from the resurrection, from the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so really, this is the, this is the third of this series, and I've titled this, this message that Easter is over, now what? So... We're beyond the crucifixion. We're beyond the resurrection. Now what do we do if we're followers of Christ? And so then next week we'll get back into Ephesians. We're in chapter 6, so we're going to begin to land that Ephesians plane over the next several weeks. And so I just want to finish up this little series looking at the crucifixion, the resurrection, and now what do we do? And so let's just think for a moment what has happened, what has, got us, what, what has gotten us to where we are today, kind of post Resurrection. How do we get here today, one, one week after Easter? So let's just think about the storyline of the Bible. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is a familiar story. It's a familiar testimony um, of what God is doing. But if you're, maybe you're not, and maybe like Will said, you have just walked in here this morning, but you need to understand the, the big theme of what this book, sometimes a complicated book, sometimes you might say very difficult to read book, so I don't read it because I don't understand it, but understand what, is, what the message of this Bible is. And what it, the message of this Bible is that God created. That's where it begins in Genesis. That God created out of nothing he created. He didn't do this because he was bored or lonely or felt like he needed a friend. He did this because he's God and God can do whatever he wants to do. And so the message of the Bible is that he, he created everything that you see. When you think about stars, when you think about universe and galaxies and in, in, in the vastness of our creation, or when you just think about the, the things that you see around us, molecules, atoms, everything that there is, he created it. And John chapter 1 says that there wasn't anything, and he's speaking of Jesus actually, there wasn't anything made that wasn't made by him, meaning the Trinity, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that, that everything that we see was made by God. And at the pinnacle of God's creation was was humanity, was Adam and Eve. And again, you don't have to be a church person to understand and know that story, that the story of the Bible says that God created the first human being. He created Adam, and then, and then he, he wanted to give Adam a helpmate or, or, or someone to be with him so that he wouldn't be alone, and so he created Eve. And the testimony of the Bible is that by the third chapter of Genesis, that, that, 
that the pinnacle of his creation re rebels against him. Mankind rebels and rejects God. In other words, God gave Adam, he gave him a simple, gave Adam and Eve simple instructions, don't touch that. Have everything else. So he gave them a law essentially to follow. And as hard as that is to believe that why, why, why would you not, I mean, have all the, everything else, but don't touch that. And, and we know the story, Adam and Eve fell to the temptation. It's just like me walking by the, on, in the kitchen. We had this little thing of M&M's. Well, just don't eat them. No, we're just tempted. We're just tempted to go out of, out of things that we know that mm, maybe not, or wonder what, or should I. But, but Adam and Eve, and we follow in suit. And so that wasn't... That wasn't a messed up plan. The, the Trinity did not get together out after Adam and Eve fell to sin and go, uh-oh, uh-oh, what do we do now? Um, I'll tell you what, let, let's kick them out and let's give them, another set, of, let's give them a, another set of rules. We'll give them the law, as we say. But that, that wasn't a second plan. All of this is in God's mystery of, uh, of how he designed all to bring glory to themselves, everything to point back to God to bring glory to himself. And so, so you and I have followed in suit that that he gives rules, he gave rules to his people, the Israelites, for, for their good. Number one, he's saying, if you follow my instruction, it is for your good. Your life will be better if you follow my rules. But also, he gave them just to reveal that we can't do what God requires. Okay, what we're trying to do is we're kind of trying to get to how did we end up where we are one week after Easter. And so God gives rules, he gives the law to show that you can't do you can't do what I'm requiring of you. And because of our disobedience, Adam and Eve's plus mine and yours, all of us have rebelled against God's law. Justice must be served because God is a just God. Someone has to pay the penalty for rebellion. Something had to atone for the injustice against God. We read last week. Um, or let me read this first. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come. Again, something had to atone for the injustice done by humanity against God. Paul writes to the Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So it begins to, to, to tell the picture. It's looking back on the picture of humanity couldn't keep the law. Humanity couldn't do what was required to have a right standing before God. And so God intervenes in his, great, in his grace and mercy in the fullness of time. He himself comes to earth in the form of a man, Jesus, to fulfill the law, to obey the law where we could not obey. Because remember, God is a just God, and justice had to be served. And so, Jesus, the God-man, fulfills the law where we failed. The scriptures testify that he is the perfect sacrifice. John the Baptist, when he speaks in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, says, when he points to he's the Lamb of God. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the way sins were atoned for before Christ was that they had to be atoned for yearly on the Day of Atonement by a perfect, spotless lamb without blemish. And so that's why Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God. He atones for sin. Atoning for sin means he makes 
amends or he makes reparation to make right the relationship. That's how in the Old Testament the Israelites, that's how the relationship between the Israelites became right with God. But it had to be done over and over and over by a sacrifice, by an atonement. And so all of that was a foreshadowing to Christ. And he is the reconciler, making the relationship right between God and man. Listen to Romans. This is what we read last week. Romans 5, verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, now that it's been made right, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so, Man rebels. God, in his grace and mercy, comes in the form of a man as the reconciler, as the atonement, as the perfect sacrifice. And that has kind of caught us up to the Gospels and the testimony of Jesus' life. And so he says some pretty blasphemous things. Jesus himself says some pretty blasphemous things. At least the Jews considered them blasphemous. Listen to these things. In John chapter 10, verse 30, I didn't give you these. You don't need to find them. He said this, he said, I and the Father are one. In other words, he said to the Jews, I'm God. So you have a man that says, just walking the earth, claiming to be God. That caused hysteria among the Jews. He said, Number two, he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me, Jesus. The Jews were going crazy when they heard this stuff. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John chapter 12. So he's saying, you want to see what God looks like? Look at me. I'm God. These things were it was causing hysteria in the life of the Israelites. He said this in, in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, they will kill me, but in three days I will rise again. What? People couldn't, they couldn't even wrap their, their mind around these things. I mean, the Israelites had been looking for the coming Messiah, but they, I don't think they were really prepared for the coming Messiah. But that, that's, kinda, that's the story of how we land where we are today. And so C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. He said, this guy who's claiming to be God, who's saying that he's going to be put to death, and in three days he rises again from death, that he is the perfect sacrifice, that he is the, the bread of life, that he is the the Lamb of God. C.S. Lewis says this, and I believe it's in Mere Christianity. He says, either this, this cat is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. And so that's what we have to reconcile with. Is, the, is Jesus God? Did he do what he said he was going to do? And if he did, what do we do with that? And that's kind of where we find ourselves today one week later, he did it. We read about it Friday night. We talked about the resurrection on Sunday. And here we are one week later. Last week was Good Friday. And then we had Easter. We remember the death of Jesus. And we celebrate his resurrection. But what do we do now? What happens after the resurrection? See, we all know that the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the Christian faith is Easter. But what happens after the pinnacle, kind of like that mountaintop experience, kind of like when the guys come back with a from a conference and they're shadow boxing, but then they have to get back into the trenches of what do we do now? I mean, we were on the mountain. What do we do now? We have to get, and that's how we are kind of after Easter. It's like, okay, yeah, we celebrated beautiful service with testimonies and baptism, 
But what do we do now, one week later? Does anyone else find it intriguing at all the attention placed on Easter in our culture and the lack of attention that follows? Like, what happened to all the chairs we had out? Did y'all put those back up? We didn't need those today? Now, listen, you're here, so you're, you're, kinda, you're okay, but don't get too self-righteous or else you find yourself in the, in the camp of the Pharisees. You go, I'm here, huh? I'm okay. My world's good. I showed up. But isn't that weird? Is that weird to anybody else? Remember Arsenio Hall back in the day? I was in college, stayed up late, stayed up till 11 back then. It was crazy. Arsenio Hall came on, and it was some of those things. Remember he said things that make you go, hmm. That's one of those things to me. That's an Arsenio Hall moment. I think he's doing like commercials for like Money Lender or something, or is that, I don't even know. But that's one of those things that makes me go, hmm. Like, what has our culture done to Easter? That, I mean, you, you anticipate. You've got to pack it out because it's Easter. It's an anniversary. It's a, it's, a, it's a holiday. But be careful how your attitude and my attitude is toward, towards that. But if we can be honest with ourselves, which I'm not sure we can, which I say that a lot. If we can be honest with ourselves, I'm not sure we can because our heart has an incredible, incredible ability to rationalize and justify anything. And so it's hard to be honest. But if we could, we would confess that Christmas and Easter have been hijacked by our culture. One by a man in a red suit and the other one by a bunny. And here's the reality that we are going along for the ride. Now, this isn't a guilt trip. I'm not, I, I am, there's nothing wrong with celebrating and remembering things like Christmas and Easter. Matter of fact, I love those little malted eggs. Those are my favorite. Matter of fact, I told Danielle last Saturday before Easter, she was going out doing the Walmart Target thing, pick up malted eggs. Love them. They were gone by Saturday evening. I love that part of Easter. Okay, but if we confess, it's really, really been, been hijacked, but we are part of the process. We're going along for the ride. And it, it's okay. I love Christmas trees. I don't like decorating them. don't like pulling down decorations, but I love the tree when it's, when it's done. But if we're basing our Christian walk on how we celebrate and remember these events, it would be similar to evaluating our marriage based on how we celebrate the anniversary. So how's your marriage going? Great! Well, based on what? Did you see my anniversary? It was awesome. We celebrated. Well, what about the other 364 days a year? It's horrible. You see the, see the analogy? And I'm talking to us, okay? I'm talking to us as a family. So we get hyped. We get special clothes. I had my Easter shirt on last week. Y'all didn't know that. Had lavender in it. That's my Easter shirt. I pull that out once a year. I think Bailey had his Easter shirt on. We talked about that. Once a year, we pull it out. It's weird what we do. It's weird what we do. But we can't base, we can't base our Christian walk on the anniversary. But as Christians, we sometimes do that. Sometimes we look the part, but we don't live the part. Just as spouses, we sometimes look the part, but we often don't live the part. Marriage going good? Yeah, based on what? Based on the trip we took on, our, on Hawaii. No, we don't base it on that. Now, man, it might go bad if you don't celebrate the anniversary, but you don't base the marriage on the anniversary. Oftentimes, we base our Christianity on our church attendance, on our appearance, on our outward morality, on do we know the, voc- do we know the lingo? Blessings, bro, bless you, bro. Be praying for you. Do we know? We base our Christianity on that. I was there. 
I'm three out of four every month. I'm there. And we base our Christianity on that. That's, that's, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So, so what are we supposed to do? Well, give me a list. What should I do then? Okay, so let's suppose you did show up for the first time last week and, and, and God did stir your heart and you did see Christ as your Savior and you accepted Christ as your Savior as your only hope, as your only trust that we have as a right standing before for God. So wh- what do we do now? And let's say we have been here and we did get fired up and it was and we had a good meal and we celebrate. What do we do now? A week after. Well, Let's go to John chapter 21. It's on page 639. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, it's on page 639. If you don't own a Bible, that's yours to keep. I want to encourage you all to to read along as we walk through this chapter. And Bennett asked me this morning, he said, what are you preaching on? I said, John chapter 21. He said, the whole chapter? And I said, yeah, the whole chapter. Is it long? (laughs) It's not too long, but we'll get through it pretty quick, maybe. Page 639, the disciples were coming off an incredible high. They walked with Jesus. Let me just give you a little backdrop. They walked with Jesus for three years. They witnessed the crucifixion. They they were witnesses to the resurrection. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, it it was Peter and John who who went to the tomb along with with Mary and and saw that Jesus wasn't there. So there were witnesses to that. And then in John chapter 20, prior to 21, um, they're in a room that's locked, and Jesus just shows up two times, once to the whole group without Thomas and later to a group with Thomas just to to testify that that I'm alive, I rose. And so... and, and. and then we pick it up in chapter 21, and, in, and it's about a week later. And so let's start reading here. And so the disciples found themselves in kind of a similar situation. Their Savior has risen. He's now what they believe to be gone from them. And they ask the question, what, what do we do? What do we do? So we begin reading in chapter 21. It says, after this, after what? After, after the week had passed, after they had ce- celebrated the Passover, after they had witness Jesus in the resurrection. So after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. So seven disciples were together. And Simon Peter says to them, well, I'm going to go fishing. They're one week out. They're a week after Easter. He says, I'm going to go fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. Sounds like a great idea. Let's go fishing. That's what we know. That's what we understand. We will go with you. They went out and got into a boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Again, they went fishing at night because that's what they were. They were fi- this wasn't like a weekend. What do you want to do this afternoon? You want to go fish? This is what they were. They were fishermen. So they went at night because you catch fish at night if that's what you are in those times and maybe even in some places today. You go out the night before to catch the fish so that you have them prepared for the market the next day so that hopefully you can sell them. And so the, the disciples did what, what, what you and I did on Monday. We, we went back to work. And so here they are in the middle of that. So they went out that night, and they caught nothing. And then it says, just as day was breaking, I'm sure after a pretty frustrating night, Jesus stood on the shore, 
Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now that's weird, but it's pretty. There's several other testimonies that said Jesus, after the resurrection, was unrecognizable until he revealed himself to the to them. Um, it happened with with Mary at the tomb, and then also um, it happens here. But but know this: he was a hundred yards off. Okay, it says they were fishing. They were about a hundred yards out. It'll say here in just a minute, and so that's understandable. To look 100 yards. I don't know who's on the back row. but I, So 100 yards is understandable to go, ah, who is that? There's a dude over there. But he was on the shore, it says. It says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So don't read too much into it, although um, it's likely that he did not allow them to know it was Jesus. And it says, Jesus said to them, now think about this. These guys are fishermen. Okay, I didn't dig into commentary. I'm just reading for what it's telling me. Okay, I'm sure there's a much deeper meaning to this. But Jesus yells out to them a hundred yards. He says, children! Now think about that. You're fishermen, and you got some dude who you don't know who he is, and he calls you a child? Now I'm sure the reference in the commentary is testifying to that, that, that we are children of Christ, that these disciples were his children. But I'm just thinking, if he in fact yelled, children! I'm looking at that. Who is that cat? Call me a child. I'll show you a child. Don't don't mess with me. He says, children, do you have any fish? Like he didn't know. He's God. (laughs) Y'all catch anything? (laughs) But they answered. They weren't ticked off. I guess. We don't have the whole story, but we have what John chose to, to reveal, that God chose to reveal through John. They said, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Again, I'm thinking, first of all, I'm thinking, if you've been out here all night, you haven't gone left side the whole time. In my mind, I'm thinking, we tried the right side, dude. But again, it testifies here that they were obedient to what Jesus said. And it says, okay, cast it on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and sure enough, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple... Whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, who's that? Well, if you read chapter 20 of this gospel of John, you will see that the writer John, one of the disciples, um, it's really funny if you read it because he often refers to the fact that he was the guy. He says he raced Peter to the tomb and the one who who Jesus loved beat him. So you got to think about that. Who wrote the book? John. Jesus loved me. I was his favorite child is what he was saying. And he says that over and over again. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John writing, me, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He wasn't naked for work. He had on his little under loin thing, but he didn't have all the all the the garb, the, the, the toga, or the, you know, the stuff that was all over him. So he puts that on because he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples, the other six, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So Peter, as Peter typically does, is the radical one in the bunch. And he says, I'm out of here. It's the Lord. It's Jesus. That wasn't just some dude on the beach. It's Jesus, so he goes after them. Probably after they caught those fish, you go, oh, we've seen something like this before. This guy's he's God. He's the provider. There he is. Oh, we thought he was gone. But here he is, right in the midst of us again. 
And when they, verse 9, it says, When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. One thing I think interesting just about that little section when they get ashore was the fact that, that Jesus already had breakfast going. He was fine. Breakfast was fine. Didn't say there was a short up. Oh, look, look, there's more of you than I thought. Didn't know all of you were coming, and so I didn't prepare enough. But he said, you know what? Bring some of yours, too. Bring some of yours, too. The message to me in that is like, God to us, come on, I'll let you contribute. I've got this, but I'll let you contribute. Come on, bring some of yours. I don't need you, but I want you. I want some of your fish, too. I'm not going to tell you how I caught mine. No net, no not rod and reel. It's just here. Bam. But I'll take some of yours. So what do we get from that first section in response to here we are one week after the resurrection? What'd they do after the resurrection? They went back to work. What'd you do Monday morning after the resurrection? After we celebrated the resurrection? We went back to work. In the midst, and this is what stands out to me, in the midst of the routine of their life, Jesus reminds them that he's still there. In the middle of their struggle. Remember what happened during the night when they were fishing? They caught nothing. I don't think Jesus just showed up. I think Jesus was there watching and allowing them to struggle. In the midst of their struggle and in the midst of their success, he was there. In other words, he's saying, you may feel like you're alone... We may feel like, our alone, like we're alone, but we're not. The disciples were never alone. And a week later after the resurrection, we're never alone. Jesus didn't disappear. He didn't disappear after last Sunday. John 15, verse 5 says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what he's referring to, he's referring to the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he says, Apart from me, you can't do anything. If you're in Christ, as we've been talking about in Ephesians, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, if you put your hope and trust and faith in Christ and Christ alone for your right standing before God, you can't separate yourself from Christ. You can try, but you can't be separated. In our culture, what we tend to do is we tend to compartmentalize our Christianity. We say, well, here's work over here. Don't need God. I've got that down. He wouldn't understand it anyway. Here's, here's my finances over here, I've got this under control. I've got Excel, or I've got QuickBooks, or I've got whatever, Quicken. I've got that under control. Don't need you, God, on that one. He probably wouldn't understand computers. I've got my career over here. I've got my marriage over here. I've got my, my kids under over here. Well, don't have my kids under control, but I'm not sure he'd be much helping that anyway. But we compartmentalize, and we compartmentalize, but, but the the biblical, what this text testifies and what the Bible testifies to is that there's nothing 
Nothing that separates us from Christ. We can't, where we are, He is. It says, if you go to work, He says, I'm there. If you have a difficult time, I allowed it. If you have success, I gave it. If you have needs, I provide for them. You want to go where I'm not? You can't. I am who I am, and I'm always there. But Paul tells the Corinthians in the fourth chapter of the first letter, he said, what do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is nothing. Everything is from God and through God and for God. And so as a Christian, we can't separate ourselves from God, even as best as we try, which we, we often try. So point number one from that first section, the resurrection does not separate us from our life. And our life should not be separated from the resurrection. The resurrection does not separate us from our life. And our life should not be separated from the resurrection. They, they're, they're entwined. They go together as a follower of Christ. Now, let's go to the next section. Get to John chapter 21, verses 15. Now, verse 15 now. These are, these are just... Um, these, these, these interactions between Jesus and his disciples, they just follow one right after another. Again, if you read John chapter 20, it almost looks as if they could end it with, um, with, with chapter, uh, chapter 20. At the end of chapter 20, he said, uh, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So it's almost like John was closing the letter, but he, he, he adds a little epilogue to the to the story, to his gospel with chapter 21. He said, and I need to get these three things in. There's really three little scenarios I need to, to point out to you. And so we get to the second one here, and it's an interaction between Jesus and Peter. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of God, do you love me more than these? Now, it's really kind of a question in the commentary. What, what are the these? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about the other disciples? Like, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Or do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Or do you love me more than you love these fish or this, this boat and all this stuff? But I think the point of the question is, is, do you love me? Whatever it is, whether it's, do you love me more than the disciples? Do you love me more than they love me? Do you love me more than your career or the fish? Do you love me? Do you love me more than anything else? And he's asking him, He's saying, Simon, it's almost like, eh. he didn't say Peter. He had given him the name Peter, gave him a new name, gave him Peter. But he, got, he, he, he reverts back to Simon, do you love me more than these? Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, then feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I can imagine a little bit of frustration. But he says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. He said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you 
where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And so notice in here, it's pretty obvious, I think, if you've got any church time in, you notice that Peter was asked three times by Jesus, our Savior, his Savior, do you love me? Just, just a week or so before, Jesus had, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so when it says Peter was grieved that he asked him three times, do you think perhaps that, that Jesus was grieved when Peter denied him? Do you think perhaps that Jesus is grieved that a week after that we deny him in whatever form or fashion that might look like? But in spite of that, in spite of that, because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, he said, now I've got work for you to do. That might have just been a little reminder. You remember, Peter? You denied me three times. Remember that? Remember? I've got work for you to do. He says this to Peter. If you love me, I'm paraphrasing this now. He's telling this to us one week later. If you love me, Christian, if you love me, Peter, then stop looking so much at your needs and look at others' needs. He says, if you love me, Peter, if you love me, church, if you love me, Christian, then make my agenda in the world more important than your own agenda. He says, if you love me, Peter, if you love me, church, if you love me, Christian, then rearrange your priorities so they're more in line with my priorities. If you love me, Peter, if you love me, church, if you love me, Christian, then stop playing Christian games and love the way that I love. That's not very objective. None of those things are because we can't figure out how do we wrap our hands around that. Okay, 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 okay but, but what do we do? This is what John testifies in his gospel earlier in the 13th chapter, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John later writes a letter, and he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 in 18, through 18, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the first point from the first section was was saying that our life can never be separated from the resurrection. That if we're a Christian, God's always there. The next point is this from that next section. It says, our love for Christ should produce an outflow of love for others. In other words, he says, feed the sheep. Don't slaughter the sheep. Encourage one another. Tend my sheep. Take care of folks. The work of Christ on the cross for our behalf should propel us to something. It should lead us to something. A mark of a Christian is how you love and serve others in response to your love for Jesus. Not to be confused with how you become a Christian. I'm talking about the outflow of response of being a Christian. We can't work our way into salvation. Jesus did the work. Remember, he was the substitute. He was the atonement. He was the sacrifice. 
We didn't do anything to earn that. Our justification, the fact that justification, the fact that we've been made right before God because of what Christ did on the cross on our behalf, if we put our hope and trust in that, then we are justified. Then Christ, then God does not look at us as a sinner, as a rebeller anymore. He looks, as, looks at us as he sees Jesus, right, perfect, without blemish, despite the fact that we still have sin. So that goes for, for sins in our past, sins today, and sins that we'll commit tomorrow. So that's how. So if you've been justified, he sees you different. You're a new creation if you've been justified. I'm no longer, it's no longer me who lives, but Christ lives in me. And so that's how. If you've been justified, made right before God, then it should produce something. It should produce the term we use in kind of Christian camps. It's sanctification. It, can, it should produce an ever-flowing, God-filled effort to become more and more like Christ. And so that's what Jesus is telling Peter. The rest of your time here on earth, there is work for you to do. There is stuff to do. Feed my sheep. Love my people. Take care of things. Go out. Spread the gospel. Tell the good news. But there is stuff to do. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so that second point was our, our love for Christ and what he's done for us should propel us to something. And this little interaction between Jesus and Peter, he says, get to work, Peter. Get to work. And I think we could take it one week later after he said, there's work to be done. There are people to be loved. There are people to be encouraged because of what Christ has done for us. And then the last section. Verse 20. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciples. Whom Je Here it is again. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Another way you say that, Peter turned and saw the favorite child. It says, it was the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? In other words, John saying, that was me. I was the one sitting beside Jesus who said... Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And so Peter's, Peter, they're walking along. They just have this interaction. Peter said, Jesus says, Peter, feed me. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Get to work. Oh, by the way, um, you were once your own, and you got to do, when you were younger, you got to do things the way you wanted to do it, but now you're following me, and now your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. This is not yours anymore, as it says in Corinthians 6. You were bought with a price. This is no longer yours, Peter. So, you're, you, you know, I, I don't even want to testify to the fact that how you're going to die for my sake. But you are. And so they're getting rid of that little interaction. They say, okay, now Peter and, and Jesus are walking along. And Peter's turn and he saw John over there. And he says, Lord, what about him? What about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He just told him that. I told you one thing to do, Peter. You feed my sheep and you follow me. But worry so much about John. So, the, so it got kind of twisted here. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, as Peter was worried about John, Peter's just saying, shut up. If, you, if I, can, I can make him live forever, it doesn't matter. I'm worried about you, and you need to worry about you. 
So what he wasn't really saying, that just shows that Jesus can be a little bit sarcastic as well. And that is one of my spiritual gifts. So I'm encouraged by that. But then he said, then, and then he closes it out and says, this is John finishing up. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness, meaning me, the one Jesus loved. Uh, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what happens in that last little exchange is really so familiar to my life. Because isn't, isn't that our tendency? I know it's my tendency. To kind of, we get instructions and we go, well, 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 well what about them? If I've got to go through a tough time, shouldn't they have to go through a tough time? Or... If I've got to do all the work, shouldn't they, have to, shouldn't they have to do something? Why should I sacrifice if, if they're not going to sacrifice? I'm doing a whole lot more than they are. Has that ever happened in your house? Maybe you have more than one child. You give one child instructions. I need you to do this, this, and this. I'll make this simple. We'll write it down. I need you to do A, B, and C. And the default response, well, what's, it, well, what's he got to do? What about him? I want to make sure it's fair. Make sure the list is fair. It's just not natural. That's not my children. I mean, it is my children, but that, I mean, that's all of us. We naturally kind of go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what are you calling me to do? So we take it and we turn it into our even Christian one. I haven't missed a one another meeting yet. What about them? They don't show up to the one another meeting. I serve in the children's ministry on the four-week cycle, not the six. What about them? What about those folks? I'm a four-weeker. More jewels in my crown. I was there when we pulled the carpet that was glued down to the old office building. Where were they? I've done some work. Have they done any? I've served at Highland more than anybody in this church. They hadn't showed up. I'm a greeter and an usher. I've got the shirt and the name tag. All my buttons are tuned to 88.5 The Truth. I don't have anything else on there but 88.5 The Truth on my radio. But they do. I bet they got classic rock. See, we do that. We kind of, we, our natural tendency is kind of go, oh, what about them? What about those folks? But they didn't get here as early as I got here this morning. See, even in church leadership, we, it's easy to look and, you know, come back from a conference like they went to. It's easy to look around and other churches and other denominations and other styles of worship. And, and, we, and we, focus, we focus more of our energy on, uh, what, what am I doing? What are they doing? How, how's this working out? And, we're basing it on what someone else is doing. Point number three, the final point. Remember the first one was we can't, our life is not separated from the resurrection and the resurrection should not be separated from our life. Point number two, that, that, that the gospel, that the work of Christ on the cross, should our love for Jesus should propel us to something. And point number three that I drew out of this last little section is that your sanctification, that process of becoming more and more like Christ, is your sanctification. And it's not someone else's sanctification. 
God has stuff for me to do. And He has stuff for you to do. And likely, it's not the same stuff. And so we kind of need to not worry so much about the other guy. Not worry about how are they serving? What are they doing? Wonder how many minutes a day they read. Oh, they journal? Oh. I hate, I hate to write. I don't journal. You know, we just it, it becomes a game. Jesus tells Peter, don't worry about John. I'm God. I can deal with everybody at the same time. I can deal with John, and I will deal with John. I can deal with Peter, and I can deal with Peter. I can deal with Reynolds, and I can deal with Brad, and I can deal with you all at the same time. But don't get so worried about what I'm doing in and through Brad or Kwame or Nathan or you or me or anybody else. Worry about what I'm doing with you because your sanctification is your sanctification. It's not someone else's sanctification. Philippians chapter 2 One of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 12 through 13, says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not on your own. He says, yes, you have work to do. But it's God who works in you and through you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, the process of sanctification, the process of getting to work, is a grace-filled effort by you and you alone. Doesn't mean you don't... You don't rub shoulders with other men and other women just to to sharpen your axe, if you will. But it means that there is work for you to do. And there is work for us to do. And we can't have our head on a swivel worrying about what everybody else is doing. It will drive you absolutely insane. And so what do I do? What do I do? How do I do it? Here's here's my recommendation. And and it comes from a little story that that's just kind of come to light over the last couple months. You've got to keep your head down just a little bit. Just a little bit of a tilt. See, when you're up here, you just worry about what everybody else is doing. What are they doing? What are they wearing? What do they look like? Where do they live? You've got to keep your head just kind of on a little tilt, looking down. Where are you going? What's the path in front of you? What's the path? We do a lot of, a couple of guys in here, we run on the trails a lot. You've got to keep your head down just a little bit. You can't look totally down, but if not, you're going to trip. You're all focused out here trying to see what all, isn't it? You've got to keep your head tilted just a little bit or you'll trip. You don't look up and worry about what everybody else is doing. You'll say, I need to be doing this. I need to be doing that based on what they're doing. When we went to Haiti in the end of January, I don't know if Dan's here this morning, so I, I don't want to, this isn't an embarrassing story. It's just the story that Brad and I kind of use now. And so Dan Rice went with us. He's, he's going to be leaving us here in about a month. Dan, are you here? Oh, geez. This is, we call this the Dan Rice story. And so we're in Haiti, and the goal in Haiti was to begin rebuilding this orphanage. And what we were doing, there was a slab that we had been worked on. We just called it kind of work on the slab. And so the size of this slab and what we're doing is, is probably from these two columns all the way over to that wall. So picture that as the size of the slab. And the goal was to build rebar columns that, that would someday be able to kind of form the pillars that you could build the wall between. And so the first trip we went, we built about, uh, what did we do, Branch? We did about 20, 18, 19, 20 of these columns, and we actually put them in. So you had to, you take the old slab and you cut it with, with, with 
not the ideal machinery, to say the least. And then after you cut this two-inch slab, you, you beat that up with a sledgehammer. And it took a lot of beating and, and a lot of beating to get just the concrete out. And then after that, you just had to dig. And this, this, this hole was about two feet by two feet. And the goal was to take it down about two feet, two and a half feet, sometimes farther. And so, and so the first trip we went last summer, we did about 20 of these. And then this trip, we knew what we were doing. We got there, and so the goal was to have 90 of these things done. And this was work. And so the reason this is the Dan Rice story, when Dan got there, we were all working. We were all doing stuff, but we knew, Jason and I, we knew where the break room was, too. We figured that out on the first trip. We knew how this system worked. And, you know, if you saw that, that's, that's union break. Scoop. Drink up. But Dan Rice, he got, he got about five, four or five Haitians on his team. He's over there telling stories, and he's talking, and, man, he, le he learned the language before any of us. He and Joseph, they knew the language before it was all over. But Dan and his team, all they did for however many days were there, they beat the slab, and they dug it out. They beat the slab, and they dug it out. They beat the slab, and they dug it out. And they never complained they never looked up. Matter of fact, we're over there on union break, and we're sitting down on just a just old 50-pound sack of corn or something, or rice, or whatever we're sitting on. And where's, where's rice? And we're sitting on it. No, where's rice? He's out there still working. He, just, he didn't even know. You know why he, did, he was still out there working? He didn't know it was a break. He didn't know the universal sign. And we didn't yell to him. But he just kind of, because his head was tilted down, he wasn't looking up saying, Dang, Counts, what are you doing? Who are you, the foreman? You never do any work. All you do is walk around and boss people. And he didn't look over there to Branch or Jarvis or anybody else and say, what are y'all doing? All he did is he and his team, he just kept his, his, and his, he had sun back here, right, real bad. He got sun where you see his hat. I mean, it was just scorched red after a couple of days. Because all he did was he just kept his head tilted. He didn't know what was going on around him. I mean, he knew what was going on around him. He knew that the concrete and the cement was being mixed, and he knew that the rebar columns were over here, but he knew he had a job to do. And so the reason it's become the Dan Rice story is because oftentimes, and Brad and I will chat or whoever we're chatting with, but we're just chatting. And every, I mean, li church life is tough. Church leadership is tough, and being a head pastor is tough, and sometimes there's just weight. There's weight that is on you because of us, because of the, just we're messed up people. And we'll just kind of after a meeting or after a talk or something, we just shake our hand and go, whew. He'll go, it's rough, bro. I say, yeah, it's rough, bro. We just need to be Dan Rice. We just need to keep plugging along. We just need to keep plowing the thing. We need, that's what we need to do. And that's what I think Peter is saying. Don't worry. Don't pick. Just tilt your head a little bit. Just pull a rice. Just keep plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. Because this whole thing is for my glory. And it's not for you. And it's not to, so that you can record how many holes that you dug out or to, you, can, you can record how big your church is or how great your business is. The whole thing is to, to make the name of Jesus great and to glorify God through Him. That's the purpose of all things. And so here we are one week after. What do we do? You do whatever God's called you to do to make the name of Jesus great. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. And so let me ask you these final questions. And then we'll close. Are you looking to Jesus in the everyday routine of your life? Are you surprised? I wonder who that is. wonder if he's here or not. 
I'm struggling. He must not be there. Now he's there. Question number two, is your love for Christ leading you and propelling you towards love for others? Is it doing anything? It's fun to go to the prep rally and it's fun to go to the, to the mountaintop. But remember, the, the game was not won or played at the pep rally. The game was played on the field. And so are we doing anything? Is what Christ has done for you and for me, for us, is it propelling us into anything? Number three, are you more worried about other sanctification than your own? You spend too much time just looking around. What, what are they doing? Man, they're not showing up. I'm, I'm quitting because they're not. I've been serving in this ministry for four years. I, I'm done. No one else is coming along. Golly. And finally, for the person who is unsure about any of this, you're not even sure. When it's telling the story about Christ, about us rebelling against God, I'm not even sure about any of that. Have you trusted in Christ? Jesus claimed to be God. So he's either a liar or lunatic or Lord. And so if you're just kind of going nonchalantly, going, ah, yeah, okay, I, I get it. We have to come to grips so or we have to wrestle with who was Jesus. And if you're wrestling with that, you have to come to grips with that. The scriptures testify that Jesus is God, that he's our only hope. He's the only way that we can have a right standing before God. The only way. I know that's not popular at the water cooler. But that's what this book that's been around for 2,000 years and longer testifies to so we've got to do something that if you struggle with that i'm just not sure struggle on struggle on but you don't have anything you don't have anything in you you don't have a story that's messed up enough that you could say there's no way god would accept me you're right he wouldn't accept you but in christ he would and so if you're not sure about any of this wrestle with it and I pray that God would continue to wrestle with you. No one, no life is outside of the loving grace and mercy of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are so good. God, help us. Because as that song that they played in the offering, our hearts are prone to leave you. They're prone to just get diverted by so many things. But even as Peter denied you, it's an incredible to, to read how even in that love, you came, in that denial, you came to him in your love and in your grace and in your mercy to let him know that you love him. And so, Lord, as we are prone to, to wonder and be diverted, would you just remind us today that you are always there one week after the resurrection that we celebrated, help us remember that in the, the everyday, the routine, the mundane, the seemingly insignificant areas of life, you're there. So help us to look for you, to see you, to be confident in that. And God uses however you see fit, knowing that it may look hundreds of different ways for all of us in here.
And then finally, God, would you help us not to be so worried about what you're doing in other people's, li- other people's lives? Oh, yes, bring others around us, God, that could help to sanctify us. But make your way clear to us so that we may work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's you who works in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your saving grace. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.